San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio and Rocket Eighty-Eight Productions present Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and adapted from stories by Dashiell Hammett. Tonight's story: The Black Hat That Wasn't There, dramatized by Mark Slade. Now listen, Mr. Zumwalt, you're holding out on me, and it won't do. If I'm going to work on this for you, I've got to have the whole story. Lester Zumwalt looked thoughtfully at me for a moment through screwed-up blue eyes. Then he got up and went to the door of the outer office, opening it. Past him, I could see the bookkeeper and the stenographer sitting at their desks. He came back and leaned across his desk, speaking to me in a husky undertone. You are right, I suppose. But what I am going to tell you must be held in the strictest confidence. About two months ago, one of our clients, Stanley Gorham, turned $100,000 worth of Liberty Bonds over to us. He had to go to the Orient on business, and he had an idea that the bonds might go to par during his absence, so he left them with us to be sold if they did. Yesterday, I had occasion to go to the safe deposit box where the bonds had been put in the Golden Gate Trust's company vault, and they were gone. Anybody except you and your partner have access to the box? No. When was the last time you saw the bonds? They were in the box the Saturday before Dan left. And one of the men on duty in the vault told me that Dan was there the following Monday. All right. Now let me see if I've got it all straight. Your partner, Daniel Rathbone, was supposed to leave for New York on the 27th of last month, Monday, to meet an R.W. Depay. But Rathbone came into the office that day with his baggage and said that important personal affairs made it necessary for him to postpone his departure that he had to be in San Francisco the following morning. But he didn't tell you what that personal business was. You and he had some words over the delay as you thought it important that he keep the New York engagement on time. You weren't on the best of terms at the time, having quarreled a couple of days before that over a shady deal Rathbone had put over, and so you... Don't misunderstand me. Dan had done nothing dishonest. It was simply that he had engineered several transactions that, well, I thought he had sacrificed ethics to profits. I see. Anyhow, starting with your argument over his not leaving for New York that day, you and he wound up by dragging in all of your differences and practically decided to dissolve the partnership as soon as it could be done. The argument was concluded in your house out on 14th Avenue, and as it was rather late by then, and he had checked out of his hotel before he had changed his mind about going to New York, he stayed there with you that night. That's right. I had been living at a hotel since Mrs. Zumwalt had been away. But Dan and I went out to the house because it gave us the utmost privacy for our talk. And when we finished, it was so late that we remained there. Then the next morning, you and Rathbone came down to the office and... No. That is, we didn't come down here together. I came here while Dan went to transact whatever it was that held him in town. 
He came into the office a little afternoon and said he was going east on the evening train. He sent Quimby, the bookkeeper, down to get his reservations and to check his baggage, which he left in the office here overnight. Then Dan and I went to lunch together, came back to the office for a few minutes, he had some mail to sign, and then he left. I see. After that, you didn't hear from or of him until about ten days later, when DePie wired to find out why Rathbone hadn't been to see him? That's right. As soon as I got DePie's wire, I sent one to Dan's brother in Chicago thinking perhaps Dan had stopped over with him. But Tom wired back that he hadn't seen his brother. Since then, I've had two more wires from Depay. I was sore with Dan for keeping Depay waiting, but still, I didn't worry a lot. Dan isn't a very reliable person, and if he suddenly took a notion to stop off somewhere between here and New York for a few days, he'd do it. But yesterday, when I found that the bonds were gone from the safe deposit box, and learned that Dan had been to the box the day before he left, I decided that I'd have to do something. But I don't want the police brought into it if it can be avoided. I feel sure that if I can find Dan and talk to him, we can straighten this mess out somehow without scandal. We've had our differences, but Dan's too decent a man, and I like him too well for all his occasional wildness, to want to see him in jail. So, I want him found with as much speed and in as little noise as possible. Has he got a car? Not now. He had one, but he sold it five or six months ago. Where'd he bank? I mean his personal account. At the Golden Gate Trust Company. Got any photos of him? Yes. He brought out two from a desk drawer. One full face, the other a three-quarter view. They showed a man in the middle of his life with shrewd eyes set close together in a hatchet face under dark, thin hair but the face was rather pleasant for all its craftiness. How about his relatives, friends, and so on, particularly his feminine friends? His only relative is the brother in Chicago. As to his friends, he probably has as many as any man in San Francisco. He was a wonderful mixer. Recently, he has been on very good terms with a Mrs. Earnshaw, the wife of a real estate agent. She lives on Pacific Street, I think. I don't know just how intimate they were, but he used to call her up on the phone frequently, and she called him here nearly every day. Then there is a girl named Eva Duthie, a cabaret entertainer who lives on the 1100 block of Bush Street. There were probably others too, but I only know of those two. Have you looked through his stuff here? Yes, but perhaps you'd like to look for yourself. He led me into Rathbone's private office, a small box of a room just large enough for a desk a filing cabinet, and two chairs, with doors leading into the corridor, the outer office, and Zumwalt's office. While I'm looking around, you might get me a list of the serial numbers of the missing bonds. They probably won't help us right away, but we can get the Treasury Department to let us know when the coupons come in and from where. I didn't expect to find anything in Rathbone's office, and I didn't. Before I left, I questioned the stenographer and the bookkeeper. They already knew that Rathbone was missing, but they didn't know that the bonds were gone, too. Mr. Rathbone dictated a couple of letters to me on the 28th, the day he left for New York. Both of those letters were business, and he told me to send John, that's John Quimby, the bookkeeper, to check his baggage and make his reservations. When I returned from lunch, I typed the two letters and took them in for him to sign, catching him just as he was about to leave. Quimby described the baggage Rathbone had checked two large pigskin bags, and a Cordovan Gladstone bag. Having a bookkeeper's mind, he remembered the number of the berth he had secured for Rathbone on the evening train. Yes, sir. 
It was lower four in car eight. The partners were out at lunch when I returned with the checks and tickets, so I put them on Mr. Rathbone's desk. At Rathbone's hotel, I was told that he had left on the morning of the 27th, giving up his room, but leaving his two trunks there, as he intended living there after his return from New York in three or four weeks. The hotel people could tell me little worth listening to, except that he had left in a taxi cab. At the taxi stand outside, I found the chauffeur who had carried Rathbone. Rathbone? Yeah, sure, I know him. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I guess it was around that day that I took him down to the Golden Gate Trust Company. And a couple of big yellow bags, and a little brown one. He rushed into the bank carrying that little one and right out again, looking like someone had kicked him on his coin. <laughs> had me take him to the Phelps building, and he didn't give me a nickel over my fare. The Phelps building was where the offices of Rathbone and Zumwalt were located, by the way. At the Golden Gate Trust Company, I had to plead and talk a lot, but they finally gave me what I wanted. Rathbone had drawn out his account a little less than $5,000 on the 25th of the month, the Saturday before he left town. From the trust company, I went down to the ferry building baggage rooms. The bribe of a cigar got me a look at the records for the 28th. Only one lot of three bags had been checked in New York that day. I telegraphed the numbers and Rathbone's description to the agency's New York office, instructing them to find the bags and, through them, find him. Then it was off to the Pullman Company. I'm sure we can find that information for you, sir. It appears that Pullman Car 8 was a through car from San Francisco all the way to New York. Uh, if you'll check back in a couple hours, we'll be able to tell you whether Mr. Rathbone had occupied his berth all the way. Telephoning will be just fine, sir. When you ring, ask for me. A dozen copies? And you want a rush job? Sure, Matt. Just leave this photo with me and we'll get it done. I haven't seen or heard anything from Mr. Rathbone for nearly a month. <sighs> I called him up at his hotel the other night. I had a party I wanted to ring him in on, but they told me he was out of town and wouldn't be back for a week or two. This Eva Duffy, one of Rathbone's lady friends, was an undersized blonde girl of somewhere between 19 and 29, depending on whether you judged her by her eyes or by the rest of her face. I asked her another question, and she said, Yes, we were pretty good friends, but not especially thick. You know what I mean. We had a lot of fun together, but neither of us meant anything to the other outside of that. Dan is a good sport, and so am I. Mrs. Earnshaw, Rathbone's other friend, wasn't so frank, but she had a husband, so that makes a difference. She was a tall, slender woman, as dark as a gypsy, with a haughty air and a nervous trick of chewing her lower lip. We sat in a stiffly furnished room, and she stalled me for about 15 minutes until I came out flat-footed with her. It's like this, Mrs. Earnshaw. Mr. Rathbone has disappeared, and we're going to find him. You're not helping me, and you're not helping yourself. I came here to get what you know about him. I could have gone around asking a lot of questions among your friends, and if you don't tell me what I want to know, that's what I'll have to do. And while I'll be as careful as possible, still there's bound to be some curiosity aroused, some wild guesses, and some talk. I'm giving you a chance to avoid all that. It's up to you. You are assuming that I have something to hide? I'm not assuming anything. I'm hunting for information about Daniel Rathbone. 
She bit her lip on that for a while, and then the story came out bit by bit, with a lot in it that wasn't any too true, but straight enough in the long run. Stripped of the stuff that wouldn't hold water, it went like this. Dan and I planned to run away together. I left San Francisco on the 26th, going directly to New Orleans. He was going to leave the next day, making it look like he was going to New York. But he was to change trains somewhere in the Middle West and meet me in New Orleans. From there, we were going to Central America. No, I don't know anything about any bonds, nor what he was planning to do with them. Anyway, I carried out my part of the plan, but Dan never showed up in New Orleans. I wasn't too happy about getting jilted, so I didn't put any effort into finding out what had kept him from joining me. No, no, I didn't try to get in touch with him. My husband arrived in New Orleans a short time later. I hadn't been very careful about covering my tracks and private detectives had located me easily. He persuaded me to come back to San Francisco, not knowing that it was another man who'd caused me to run away. Mrs. Earnshaw's story rang true enough, but just to play safe, I put out a few feelers in the neighborhood, and what I learned seemed to verify what she had told me. I gathered that a few of the neighbors had made guesses that weren't a million miles away from the facts. After that, I got the Pullman Company on the phone. Uh, Yes, sir. I'm sorry to report that lower berth number four in car number eight, leaving for New York on the 28th, was not occupied at all. Zumwalt was dressing for dinner when I went up to his hotel room. I told him all that I had learned that day and what I thought of it. Everything makes sense up until Rathbone left the Golden Gate Trust Company vault on the 27th, and after that, nothing does. He'd planned to grab the bonds and elope with this Mrs. Earnshaw, and he'd already drawn all his own money out of the bank. That's all orderly. But why should he have gone back to the office? Why should he have stayed in town that night? What was the important business that held him? Why should he have ditched Mrs. Earnshaw? Why didn't he use his reservations at least part of the way across the country as he had planned? False trail, maybe, but a rotten one. (sighs) There's nothing to do, Mr. Zumwalt, but to call in the police and the newspapers and see what publicity and a nationwide search will do for us. But that means jail for Dan, with no chance to quietly straighten the matter up. It does, but it can't be helped. And remember, you've got to protect yourself. You're his partner, and while not criminally responsible, you are financially responsible for his actions. You've got to put yourself in the clear. Well, yes. I I suppose you are right. All right. I'll get on the horn with the police and the papers. For two hours, I was busy giving all the dope we had to the police, and as much as we wanted published, to the newspapers. Luckily, they had photographs of Rathbone, taken a year before when he had been named as co-respondent in a divorce suit. Then I called the agency office. Sam? Hi, yeah, it's me. Grab a pencil. I want to send off three telegrams. You ready? Okay. First, to the New York office, asking that Rathbone's baggage be opened as soon as the necessary authority can be secured. What? Well, if he didn't go to New York, the baggage should be waiting at the station, right? Next, to Chicago, asking that Rathbone's brother be interviewed and then shadowed for a few days. Lastly, one to New Orleans to have the city search for him. Got all that? Fine. If the old man asks, I've gone home to bed. The next day's papers had Rathbone spread out all over the front pages, with photographs and descriptions and wild guesses and even wilder clues that had materialized somehow between last night and now. Just before noon, a telegram came from New York 
itemizing the things found in Rathbone's baggage. The contents of the two large bags didn't mean anything. They might have been packed for use or for a stall, but the things in the Gladstone bag, which had been found unlocked, were puzzling. Boiled down, they consisted of silk pajamas, shirts, underwear, neckties, handkerchiefs, toiletries, a map of Honduras, a Spanish-English dictionary, a pint of scotch, and a 32 caliber revolver. Zumwalt, his bookkeeper, and his stenographer were watching two men from headquarters search Rathbone's office when I arrived there. After I showed them the telegrams, the detectives went back to their examination. What's the significance of that list? It shows that there's no sense in this thing the way it now stands. That Gladstone bag was packed to be carried, but he checked it as baggage. Maybe he checked it as an afterthought, to get rid of it when he found he wasn't going to need it. But what could have made it unnecessary to him? Don't forget that it's apparently the same bag that he carried into the Golden Gate Trust Company vault when he went for the bonds. Damned if I can dope it. Here's something else for you to dope. Some kind of letter. I found it behind one of those drawers where it slipped down. The handwriting's feminine or I'm President Coolidge. Listen. Dear Danny boy, if it isn't too late, I've changed my mind about going. If you can wait another day, until Tuesday, I'll go. Call me up as soon as you get this, and if you still want me, I'll pick you up in the Roadster at the Shattuck Avenue station Tuesday afternoon. More than ever yours, Boots. It's dated the 26th, the Sunday before Rathbone disappeared. That's the thing that made him lay over another day, and made him change his plans. I guess we better run over to Berkeley and see what we can find at Shattuck Avenue station. Mr. Zumwalt, how about this stenog of yours? Mildred? What about her? Is she... How friendly was she with Rathbone? Miss Narbet is to be married to me as soon as my wife gets her divorce. That is why I canceled the order to sell my house. Now, would you mind telling me just why you asked? <laughs> just, a ra just a random guess. I don't want to overlook any bets. But now that's out of the way. It is. And it seems to me that most of your guesses have been random ones. If you will have your office send me a bill for your services to date, I think I can dispense with your help. Just as you say, but you'll have to pay for a full day today. So if you don't mind, I'll keep working at it until tonight. Very well. But I am busy, and you needn't bother coming in with any reports. All right. I made my way up Market Street, bumping shoulders and stepping on people's feet as I mulled things over. I decided to call the old man and get his take on things. Suppose the two partners are in this thing together. That seems like an interesting theory. Yes, sir. One of them would have to be the goat, and that part fell to Rathbone. Zumwalt's man are in action since his partner's disappearance fit that theory well enough. Yes. That letter from Boots had not been in the desk when I searched it. I took every drawer out and even tilted the desk to look under it. Then the letter seems to have been a plant. And then again, maybe Zumwalt had given me the air because he was dissatisfied with the work I had done and peeved at my question about the girl. And maybe not. It's not unknown for a criminal to give himself the appearance of innocence by employing a private detective before calling in the police. You're right. Then the private sleuth would tell the client everything he learned, every step he took, giving Zumwalt an opportunity to correct any mistakes or oversights in the partner's plans before the police came into it. And if the private detective got on dangerous ground, he could be called off. Hmm. You seem to have things well in hand. 
See what you can do in the final few hours of Mr. Zumwalt's employ. Several decades of sleuthing have left the old man completely without emotion, but that doesn't mean he's lost his oomph. Whenever he says something seems to be a thing, that tells me I'm heading in the right direction. I left the drugstore phone booth and took in a cup of coffee and a sandwich at the counter while I mulled things over. Now suppose Rathbone was found in some city where he was unknown, and that would be where he'd go. Zumwalt would volunteer to go forward to identify him. He would look at him and say, no, that's not him. Rathbone would be turned loose, and that would be the end of that trail. This theory left the sudden change in Rathbone's plans unaccounted for, but it made his return to the office on the afternoon of the 27th more plausible. He had come back to confer with his partner over that unknown necessity for the change, and they had decided to leave Mrs. Earnshaw out of it. Then they had gone out to Zumwalt's house. For what? And why had Zumwalt decided not to sell the house? And why had he taken the trouble to give me an explanation? Could they have cashed the bonds there? A look at the house wouldn't be a bad idea. Hey, buddy, can you change a quarter to nickels? Sure thing, mister. Oakland Police, let me talk to Bennett, Detective Squad. Hiya, Frank. Yeah, it's me. Say I'm hoping you can do me a favor. I've got this client named Zumwalt, Lester Zumwalt, here in the city. Get him on the phone. Tell him you've picked up a man who answers Rathbone's description to a T and ask him to come over and take a look at him. When he gets there, stall him as long as you can. Pretend that the man is being fingerprinted and measured or something like that, and then tell him that you found that the man isn't Rathbone and that you're sorry to have brought him over there and so on. If you only hold him for half or three quarters of an hour, it'll be enough. It'll take him more than half an hour traveling each way. Thanks. I stopped in at the office, stuck a flashlight in my pocket, and headed for 14th Avenue. Zumwalt lived in a two-story, semi-detached house, and the lock on the front door held me up about four minutes. A burglar would have gone through it without checking his stride. This breaking into the house wasn't exactly according to the rules, but on the other hand, I was legally Zumwalt's agent until they discontinued work that night, so this crashing in couldn't be considered illegal. I started at the top floor and worked down. Bureaus, dressers, tables, desks, chairs, walls, woodwork, pictures, carpets, plumbing. I looked at everything that was thick enough to hold paper. I didn't take things apart, but it's surprising how speedily and how thoroughly you can go through a house when you're in training. I found nothing in the house itself, so I went down into the cellar. It was a large cellar and divided in two. The front part was paved with cement and held a full coal bin, some furniture, some canned goods, and a lot of odds and ends of housekeeping accessories. The rear division was without windows and illuminated only by one swinging electric light, which I turned on. A pile of lumber filled half the space. On the other side, barrels and boxes were piled up to the ceiling. Two sacks of cement lay beside them, and in another corner was a tangle of broken furniture. The floor in this rear section was of hard dirt. I turned to the lumber pile first. I wasn't in love with the job ahead of me, moving the pile away and then back again, but I needn't have worried. A board rattled behind me and I wheeled to see a figure rising from behind a barrel and scowling at me over a black automatic pistol. Put your hands up. Sure thing, Mr. Zumwalt. I didn't have a pistol with me, not being in the habit of carrying one except when I thought I was going to need it. So I put my hands up and one of them brushed against the swinging light globe. 
I drove my knuckles into it. As the cellar went black, I threw myself backward and to one side. Zumwalt's gun streaked fire. Nothing happened for a while. I figured that I couldn't move without making a noise that would draw gunfire, so I lay still. Then began a very tense game. There were two doors in this part of the cellar. One, on the opposite side, opened into the yard and was probably locked. I was lying on my back across the other, waiting for a pair of legs to grab. Zumwalt, with a gun out of which only one bullet had been spent, was somewhere in the blackness and aware from his silence that I was still alive. I figured I had the edge on him, so I waited. Time passed, maybe half an hour. The floor was damp and hard and uncomfortable. The electric light had cut my hand when I broke it, and I couldn't determine how badly I was bleeding. I thought of the old newspaper cartoon of a blind man in a dark room hunting for a black hat that wasn't there and sympathized with that blind man. Whoops. Boxes are a barrel falling over. Zumwalt's moving out from his hiding place. Silence for a while. And then I could hear him moving cautiously off to one side. Without warning, two streaks from his pistol sent bullets into the partition somewhere above my feet. I wasn't the only one who was feeling the strain. After another period of silence, I could hear a soft sliding, dragging across the dirt floor. I pictured him crawling awkwardly on his knees in one hand, the other hand holding the pistol out ahead of him. I stretched my hands out toward the sound and held them there. If they touched him first, I'd have a chance. God damn it. Damn. Abruptly he came. Hair brushed the fingers of my left hand. I closed them about it, pulling the head I couldn't see viciously toward me, driving my right fist beneath it. What? You can guess that I put everything I had into that punch when I discovered later that one of my cheeks was scorched and realized only then that his gun had gone off. He wiggled and I hit him again. Oh. On your feet, Zumwalt. Where's your gun? Here it is. <coughs> Let's you and I find a replacement bulb. Get some light in here. What do you say? Are you recovered yet, Zumwalt? Feeling fine? Ugh. Good. Now dig it up. That was a safe way of putting it. I wasn't sure what was buried or where it would be, except that his selecting this part of the cellar to wait for me in made it look as if this was the right place. You'll do your own digging. Maybe, but I'm going to do it now, and I haven't the time to tie you up. So if I've got to do the digging, I'm going to crown you first, so you'll sleep peacefully until it's all over. Yes, all right, I'll do it. There's a spade behind the lumber pile. He moved some of the barrels to one side and started turning up the dirt. When a hand, a man's hand, dead yellow where the damp dirt didn't stick to it, came into sight, I stopped him. I had found it, and I had no stomach for looking at it after three weeks of lying in the wet ground. <laughs> I, it couldn't be helped. <laughs> it couldn't be helped. Later in court, Lester Zumwalt's plea was that he had killed his partner in self-defense. I took the Liberty Bonds in a futile attempt to cover losses in the stock market. 
Daniel Rathbone, I learned later, really had intended taking them and going to Central America with Mrs. Earnshaw. But when he visited the safe deposit box and found them gone, he returned to the office and charged me with the theft. I didn't suspect Dan at that time of any dishonesty, so I promised to restore the bonds. I invited him to my house to discuss the matter. Dan was dissatisfied with my plan of restitution and attacked me. He was killed in the struggle. As far as Mildred Narbett, my stenographer, is concerned, I confessed the whole story to her and persuaded her to help me. Between us, we made it appear that Daniel had been in the office for a while the next day, the 28th, and had then left for New York. The jury, however, seemed to think that Zumwalt had lured his partner out to the 14th Avenue house for the purpose of killing him. So Zumwalt was found guilty of murder in the first degree. The first jury before which Mildred Narvet was tried couldn't agree on a verdict. The second jury acquitted her, holding that there was nothing to show that she had taken part in either the theft of the bonds or the murder, or that she had had any knowledge of either crime until afterward, and that her later complicity was, in view of her love for Zumwalt, not altogether blameworthy. As for me, the old man praised me publicly at an office gathering for my good work, but gave me merry hell in private for working so hard to convict a client, one who eventually refused to pay his bill. You have been listening to The Black Hat That Wasn't There, Episode 4 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech, Jeff Moon as Zumwalt, Angela Young as Mildred, Mark Kalita as Quimby, John Bell as the Chauffeur, Jason D. Johnson as the City Detective, Paul Arbisi as the Pullman Employee, Frank Guglielmelli as the Photographer and the Soda Jerk, Jessica Rainville as Eva Duthi, Jerry Eliff as Mrs. Earnshaw, and Joe Stofko as The Old Man. Music by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. The Black Hat That Wasn't There was written by Dashiell Hammett and appeared in the November 1st, 1923 issue of Black Mask Magazine and was originally titled It. Adaptation by Mark Slade. Script editing by Pete Lutz. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonius Productions. This program was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Join us again soon for Episode 5, Bodies Piled Up. Sixty-three Audio. Rocket 88 Production.